Well, the thing is, as incredibly annoying as all that is to live with, it's it's good because you could circulate it and make it into a powerful um, lesson in writing of, you know, what's not good for society. It gives us, yeah, I mean, I, it's funny, I write a lot of, best, my, a lot of my fiction takes place in the far future, where technology is so, so powerful that it's, connects people, it has eliminated death itself, it eliminates diseases, it allows practical immortality um, and information from around the solar system being available instantaneously, but um, I do subscribe to the notion that technology doesn't automatically make us a better species, so the darker, seedier, violent aspects of human nature are also given new platforms as well. I don't think I want to live forever. I don't have any desire for that. I wouldn't mind the option. I'll, I'll tell you that. I wouldn't mind the option of another couple of centuries. No, I think I think I'll live a normal lifespan. I'll be happy with that. <laughs> okay. Um, I just I don't know. Because everybody I love, not everybody will be here, and I don't. That it just isn't something I want. <laughs> Well, ah, but in in, uh, in the future, in the future that I write about, everybody else has the option too. So it wouldn't be you alone. You'd have a whole society of people who are celebrating their 200, 300, 400th birthday, celebrating their 500th anniversary. Um, you're not uh, alone, immortal, which is something I don't think many people would, would want. Um, but yeah, it's a whole society who has the option. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a whole different aspect of it. Yeah, a lone immortal, uh, that's a lonely life. That's a lonely very. eternity. Yeah. I think that's one of, okay, this is a totally off subject, but it's, I think it's sort of like Doctor Who. He, he, that's what, he's so lonely because everybody dies or, you know, they are going to die, you know, and he's going to live on, he's going to keep regenerating. It's, I don't, I, 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 he, and a lot of times they don't want to go on and sometimes they they almost make the decision not to regenerate because they just don't want to do it anymore <laughs> right because because they are one of the only ones that can I agree um, but uh, you know it's I have often felt that five six seven decades uh, that a lot of us have it's not enough not enough to really appreciate everything that life can offer. So if everybody else had the option of extending their lives, I, I would live in that world. Yeah, okay. If you had your family, that would be different. <laughs> family, friends. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You, yeah, well, your friends and your family and, you know, stuff like that. Your pets. Uh, <laughs> yeah, why not? Well, you're going to give it to the people. you got to give it to your pets, too. <laughs> Of course, of course. I just actually just have a, a new pet myself. I got a cat for the first time. Aww, um, I love cats. A little more cat. than a year ago. So Cyrus is Cyrus's name is. I actually ended up selling. Um, I wrote a little nonfiction piece about him and sold it to an edition of Chicken Soup for the Soul. So that will be coming out next year. Aww. Yeah, I love. I um. I've always loved cats. Um. I love dogs too. I'm not a. I'm not. I I've never had the bigotry. Uh, 
cat people and dog people. I'm it's a very, bo- it's curious bigotry. Why? I mean, team cat, team dog. I mean, what? Why? Exactly. I love what, animals. Of all, I think we just like the battle. Yeah, I think that's yeah. it. I mean, species. I think we like our conflicts. Because um, I have cats because I live in an apartment. Um, but I love cats anyway. I mean, I've, I've had cats and dogs since I was a kid. So it's not, and both at times. So I, I, I don't really understand the bigotry. Um, <laughs> I love animals. You know? All animals. Sure. Even the ones that are pains in the butt and ugly. <laughs> I still love them. Yeah, yeah aesthetics, uh, my empathy doesn't have to rely on aesthetics. Mm-mm. I mean, I don't want a pet snake, but I don't have anything against snakes. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think all animals should be you know, treated with respect. Sure. So, um, are you loving, you said you've had your cat for a year, and you've never had a cat before, or you had a cat as a kid, and this is your first cat on your own? Oh, no, I never had a cat before. Never had a cat before? Nope. What made you get a cat? Uh, My girlfriend and I uh, adopted him. Uh, uh, Basically, a a friend of hers had, uh, her cat had a litter, and, um, couldn't keep all of them, so we ended up taking one. It was only supposed to be temporary, but we ended up of really falling in love with him. So uh, it's a very fierce little. Um, for being about what is it, about 14 pounds, I think now he's got a he has the personality of a protector, like mm-hmm. this little protector lion who cares about us a lot, and so he's at the windows and always following us around. He's rather more affectionate and. Um, and and demanding in his own way than I expected. I think. It sounds like my cat. My mine's a girl, but she's a lot like that. She she also, if birds fly by the front window, she, she will bang against the window to look at them. She's like, oh my god, birds! <laughs> yeah, that's the well. You know, millions of years of instinct, hardwired. Yeah, so funny. Um. And she, she's like a little. I've had a lot. I've had a lot of cats, but I've never had one quite the huntress that she is. She, it, a tiny little bug, <laughs> would make her nuts. She will chase that thing till she gets it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And uh, well, my cat likes to hunt us, um, like playfully. Nothing, nothing malicious. Oh yeah. But it's you can you can see that that old instinct, the old lurking in the savanna grassland, mm-hmm. uh, pow- biting its time, studying its quote-unquote prey, and then bouncing out. And then instead of attacking, though, he just kind of bats at our legs a little bit and then runs away because he wants us to chase him. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, we figured it, that out about Pi, that it's playtime with her. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, because she will, for, for, I, for some reason, she feels I'm a gazelle because um, she always goes after my legs. <clears throat> but she's got enough toys that she could play by herself. But she wants us to play with her. Uh, <laughs> I mean, my cat's three now, but she's—you know—it's like uh, we have a kid. 
because she has all these toys and she's got big condo to climb up and stuff. <clears throat> we got to get some of that energy out at night, you know. <laughs> yes, that's I'm learning as well. Um, yeah, the condo works really well. She loves that because it has a scratch post at the top and she has her little scratch post below. It depends what she feels like is she wants to um, get the scratch post below. Boy, she beats that up. Or she'll climb up and be sort of like King Kong <laughs> at the top of the scratch post and then clawing into it. She's so funny. She's um, an Egyptian short hair and a Turkish short hair. And she, um, according to what we looked up, she uh, the Egyptian side is the clown of the cat world. Ah, okay. And she, she fits it very much so. She's very funny. <laughs> um, but her, her name's actually Pie Wacket, but we call her Pie. We, oh, but because we say no pie, it would be longer to say no pie wacket. So we say no pie, no pie. <laughs> no, you're not allowed on the counter. Get down. <laughs> well, I mean, I named uh, Cyrus after the founder of the Persian Empire, ah. which, as it turns out, sort of fits him because he is very strong-willed and um, doesn't think he is a tiny little furry mammal. He thinks he is, as I said, a, Big a creature of larger dimensions and ancient power, and bestowed by ancient powers to be a protector of his domain. Do you ever put on um, one of the natural shows? Like, they have these things about prides of cats and stuff. Whenever I put one of those on, Pi will go and either lay on my lap or lay in front of the TV and is like a little kid seeing about relatives, you know? <laughs> well, Cyrus has definitely taken an interest in the MGM lion when he roars. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just, but cats, always, we've always had cats like that. My, um, one of my dad's favorite Disney movies was Bambi. And when, uh, one of the cats we had was, her name was Kitty. And for some reason, when my dad once in a while wanted to watch that, he put it on and immediately uh, Kitty would jump on his lap and, and curl up with him to watch. Oh, that's sweet. That's it sweet. Was sweet. And it's not their public reputation, but that's what I'm, I'm finding out is that uh, they, at least if they're yours, they're more affectionate and attentive, and they don't go hiding out and you know just vanish. And when they're on a rumor, they're they're in a presence when they're when they're around. So. Oh yeah. Well, my cat right now is sleeping in another room. Um, she she sometimes sleeps in here when I'm doing it. She she's really uninterested in these interviews. <laughs> She usually either will crawl in here and go go lay down on the bed next to me and go to sleep. It's next to my desk. Or she will go into one of the other rooms and one of the many services which are hers and go to sleep. That's cat. That's cute. But that's cat. That's cat. Yeah. 
Um, so one of the things that I know that people that are young writers want to know is what inspired you the first time to pick up the pen and write? Reading inspired me, I think. I grew up reading Gray Bradbury and Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft and, and non-genre writers as well. And I just loved how the books became portals into other worlds and other times and other minds. And I wanted to do that for people. I wanted to be part of that tradition. I, it, it fired up my imagination. And I wouldn't say it was a conscious choice. I don't know too many writers who say I'm going to set out to be a writer. I just felt it in my bones. I wanted to write stories. So I started writing first little comic books and then writing out longhand on large yellow legal pads and eventually got my first typewriter and from there an electronic typewriter and then the computer that I swear by today. That's what, that's what did it, wanting to be a part of that, wanting to open up portals to other people, provide them escapes into what's possible, things that are coming, things that have happened, dreams and nightmares. Interesting. Do you um do you write get inspired a lot from your dreams and your nightmares? I've I've actually written an entire book uh, based on a a dream I had. You know, I uh, I know a lot of writers who, who that seems to be their muse. For me, it's usually not. I don't often remember my dreams, and when I do, they tend to be more pedestrian. Uh, although I dream about floods a lot for some reason, like the world flooding or places flooding. Uh, but I definitely, I, I tend to be inspired by um, by settings, a setting, a location. I would say 90% of the time, that's what triggers a story idea for me. I do a lot of traveling, and I do a lot of hiking. I feel that a writer has to engage with the world to, to get the fuel for, for their engine. And it's settings, whether it's... Uh, you know, here I'm in Connecticut, so we have really ancient cemeteries here. So a cemetery, or sitting in a bookstore reading while the rain is falling, uh, streaming the window outside, and being on a whale watch, going to Venice. Locations get my uh, get get the creative juices flowing. What? Um... I did write oh, one sorry. story that <laughs> I can think of off the top of my head. Um, one story off the top of my head that uh, was inspired by a nightmare. That story. Is currently on Pseudopod. It's a story called A World of Bones, and uh, people can listen to it for free on Pseudopod. Interesting. Um, so when you when you read, is it is it books that are, are that something you've read a lot of times? You know, are you one of those people who read books? the same book or the same genre all the time or are you more eclectic and you read different kinds of books no my interests are all over the place in fact most of my reading is nonfiction. I'm very I'm keenly interested in history uh, mythology um, I read a lot about science uh, astronomy evolutionary biology I like paleontology and archaeology I just had a story published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction that was set on a dig site in Mongolia and reading about that, researching that, interviewing uh, 
an actual archaeologist for that just opened up my mind to what's possible. So I like to, I, my, my reading is extremely eclectic. Yeah, that's me too. I like everything. Well, I studied archaeology in school. So uh, I have a fascination with archaeology. I've interviewed um, Colleen Darnell, who on Instagram is called the Vintage Ar Egyptologist, because she wears these amazing 1920s and 1930s outfits, even when she's digging in Egypt. I actually think that's terrific. That takes it back to like Howard Carter, and that's that's great stuff. I love it. It is, and um, yeah, she has. She and her husband has a new book that I I just interviewed her for, which is all about Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Oh, it's cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, history itself is just one glorious epic that just extends its story threads around the world, different continents, civilization. I spent time in Greece uh, was it, uh, two years ago now, and I'm actually going back next year, and wandering around... 2,500-year-old ruins, 3,000-year-old ruins. Mm -hmm. We went to the to Mycenae, and it was like it was like stepping into Conan the Barbarian, <laughs> the, the gigantic Cyclopean masonry, and the, the wind whipping around these these ruins that have been there since before the Greek Dark Age. So it's uh, that's that's very inspiring, and uh, I definitely live for for travel. I I love travel. I mean, the first time I ever saw something really old was when I was in England and we uh I went to the we went to Bath and went to the Roman um Bath. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I was so excited because you know, raised in California, we have a lot of archaeological sites that are wonderful. But even the Native American sites don't go back as old as like Stonehenge, you know. So it's just all that stuff is so cool to me. <laughs> well, from Mayan pyramids to Aztec pyramids to Egyptian pyramids to the Great Wall of China, the Stonehenge, like you say, uh, the world is. It, it, it appreciate. It makes you appreciate the human story. Mm -hmm. You know we, what what if it's bright points it's dark points it's in inventiveness and it's always a it's always a mistake to underestimate what people were able to do in the past oh yeah so um so a lot of history itself is, is very inspirational to me i write again i write in the far future a lot of my stories are set in the far future but uh history is very present in in what i write there's a lot of historical references a lot of mythological references literary references because First of all, it's something that I find interesting, but also I want to show that this is just a continuation of the, of the human story. Whether we're living on my story set, my book is set on Mars. Uh, my book, Red Space Rising, uh, is set on Mars. But it's a people don't change that much. The costumes change, the technology changes, uh, but the human being, uh, the the human frailties. Uh, and possibilities and potentials is still the same as it ever was. Mm -hmm. We have good and bad potentials in us, and uh, Red Space Rising gets into a lot of that. It's, it may be the future, it may be Mars, but it's still a human story. 
it's it's interesting what you're saying because that's something our dad said a lot was that sociologically humans have not changed. Not really. We're basically the same. Um, we we've changed very slowly sociologically. We have changed, um, like you were saying, technologically. Amazing changes, um, and economics and and agricultural and all the wonderful things that we found. I mean, you were talking about stuff like ancient Greece. Did you know that there's uh, they found a battery and they still haven't figured out how they did it. In ancient Greece, they found an actual battery. Uh, the bag it was called the Baghdad battery. Uh, it's 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 a hypothesis. They have a they found it. It's a clay pot, um, and the the theory is that um, it was used perhaps to generate um, enough of an electrical charge um, with the iron rod and the citric juice probably being uh, citric acid being used uh, to maybe electroplate, maybe just sort of um, apply to a, a part of the body that might have been in pain, like arthritis, uh, and maybe even to convey a sense of wonder, like you're touching an artifact that belonged to the gods or something. So it is interesting. And then, of course, in ancient Greece, they had the, um, uh, there's a mechanism that was discovered that confirmed x-rayed, and you can see it in museums, uh, that was an extraordinarily advanced uh, Timekeeping device. Mm -hmm. uh, oh yeah, the like mechanism. Yeah, yeah, I know it's so cool. I love it. Yeah. And there's another device that um, it was an Egyptian in Alexandria. I forgot her name, but it, it actually was a, a small, rather beautiful device that she used to track the stars. I mean, um, yeah. an astrobe. And astrolabe, uh, yeah, um, probably Hypatio is probably the one who was using it. But it was just, um, it's, and she was amazing. She was one, yeah. she was such an amazing woman. Um, horrible end, but um, but. Oh, uh, horrible, nasty, terrible end. Yes. Yeah, but she um, was brilliant. But again, that gets back into history, you know, the, the the wonders and the wonderful people and the wonderful. That's, that's, that goes back to books, right? I mean, books cross history. Books mm -hmm. erase the timelines, mm -hmm. erase the time barriers, because you can read, you can you can read books that were written by Julius Caesar, the Civil War, and the Conquest of Gaul. You can read, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 it allows a soul to continue across the ages. And also, that's one thing you have to learn when you're reading history or classic fiction or anything like that is that there's going to be stuff in it that disturbs you. That what you're reading is history. So you have to remember this is the way it was then. You're going to learn how the society was, but you're also going to see how nasty people can be. You have to... You can't say a book is bad because there's something in it you don't like. You know? 100% agree. 100% agree. And I'm a so fierce opponent of censorship for that reason. Yeah. yeah. It's so important. You have to be able to learn from history, and if you start censoring history, you're not going to learn. You know, if you don't learn from the past, you're going to keep making those mistakes over and over again. 
I love Which that. we continue to do over and over again. I know. <laughs> I know. I won't say what my dad used to say because it's not really nice on the air, but I'll tell you after. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, it's not. It's not that it wasn't nice. It was there's a little bit of bad language in it. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, censorship can. You know, I, I feel strongly enough about it that it's okay to. Uh, he was colorful language sometimes. Um, I wrote a story for Nature, a Nature magazine, that was published called The Last Library. And it's about all the book burnings throughout history, from China to Alexandria to the, to Berlin uh, in the 1930s. Um, just, it unfortunately is one of those ugly episodes that keeps repeating itself throughout the human drama. Uh, book burners, inquisitors, people are for censorship. They always have their justifications, but you end up erasing, as you said, part of history, part mm -hmm. of the story. Mm -hmm. So, and the thing is, is that intelligent people will still read those books. You can, you can try to hide it. You can try to you try to burn some of those books, but there's still people. You can't burn all the books, and there there people will go to any length to get books that are banned. I mean. One of the things that I find really interesting is that in the 1920s, one of the most popular books was Lady Chatterley's Lover, which was banned throughout Europe. But people were getting it. People were buying it and reading it wherever they had to get it from. Well, Mike, with modern technology, I do get a little concerned that in the past it required 451 degrees to burn a book. Today, with everything electronic, you can censor with a search and replace command. So it is, uh, it's, a, it's something we always have to be aware of and always have to stand up um, or rather stand against uh, those who want to censor. Exactly. And it just it makes no sense to me. And, you know, great authors disappear not because of censorship some great authors just disappear because people forget them yeah did you know that f scott fitzgerald his books completely disappeared until the 1960s when a bunch of uh college professors in several of the ivy league colleges and that spread to all of the colleges and then that spread to the high schools and then it spread worldwide and it had an upsurgence of his books but he had completely disappeared from like the 40s to the 60s, just because. Which is criminal because Fitzgerald is a is a marvelous writer. He's one of my favorites from the jazz age. Me too. I mean, he's one of my favorite yeah. writers of all time. Actually, not just from the jazz. He's just. I think The Great Gatsby is one of the best books I've ever read. Still, and people think it's. It, they don't really seem to, because of some of the movie, well, the one movie that just came out, um, they they take what it is and they make it into the splashy thing, but really it's talking about the sadness, what that's underneath and, and how the lives of people are, it, it's all so human and it's so beautiful and tragic, and yet they don't. People don't see it because they see these splashy, the splashy movies with Leonardo DiCaprio. Well, that's why I generally, on principle, I don't like adaptations. Um, 
So (laughs) there's some exceptions, but generally speaking, it's very hard to convey, to translate a book into a film, and when they do, they tend to lose the soul of the book in the process, or they try to change it into a a hollow vehicle for the director's own ego or something. They, They miss the entire point of why the book was written. Of course, you miss the language. So uh, I'm not a big fan of adaptations as a rule. I think if somebody wants to read The Great Gatsby, read The Great Gatsby. Don't, yeah. don't see the movie. It's also a really short book. <laughs> it's really a novella. Right, yeah, it's, not, it's, it's not like, yeah, it's not War and Peace, right? It, it's really, um, that's one of the things I, I discovered. Um, the Time Machine, The Great Gatsby, these books I always wanted to read when I got them. I'm like, God, they're short. <laughs> And actually, it's funny you say the time machine. So the time machine is um, an excellent novel by H.T. Wells. Yes. And One of my the favorites. movie that was made in the 1960s was okay. You know, it got it hit the main points. Um, it made it made some deviations, but it generally kept true to the primary beats. Oh yeah. But the late the last one they did was had nothing to do atrocious. with it. it yeah, had nothing to do with it. Reinvented it. it. Nothing to do with the story whatsoever. Missed the point of everything. And. Uh, it saddens me when people refer, oh, I saw that movie. Well, then you didn't see the story. I mean, if you see the Rod Taylor movie, at least, like you said, that it is the story. I mean, there, it's, like, it's basically the story. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, and, and, I think Pal really believed in the, you know, the book. So he made George sure. Powell did a, you're right, he did an admirable job of adapting. He res- here's what it comes down to. He respected the source mm-hmm. material. Mm-hmm. That's what it came down to. Yeah, I mean, there was um, there was a movie, Great Gatsby, in the seventies with Robert Redford and Mia Farrow. That yeah. was very good because they actually yeah. it was it was very respectful of, of the original material. And it's not difficult to do. I mean, even if. I can understand making certain alterations for trying to condense a novel into a two-hour running time, but yeah. a lot of the changes that are made in adapting things, they're made because the the people adapting it are either scornful or ignorant of the uh, source material, or just keep the title and slap that onto an unrelated story. Um, that's happened to a lot of Osmo's books. You know, I, Robot, had nothing to do with the book at all. I Am Legend betrayed, uh, that, was, that was Richard Matheson, but that betrayed the the whole point of Matheson's book. They turned it into a generic zombie film when I Am Legend is one of my top ten favorite books, and it's the, the ending of the book is what is the point. That's the reason you read it, is for the surprise, which I will not reveal on your show, but uh, it's, it's and that's not a big book either. It's, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a simple, lean read, but It's just not enough. Not enough uh, people in Hollywood, I think, have a, have respect for the material. I loved Richard Matheson somewhere in time. Well, it was Bidtime Return, the first the first title of it. They didn't think Americans would understand Bidtime Return. They had to change it to Somewhere in Time. Um, but you know, that's, that's like a forgotten gem with uh, Christopher Reeve and uh, Jane Seymour. Jane Seymour and Christopher Plummer. Yes. And Teresa Wright. And Christopher Plummer, too. Yeah, Christopher, Christopher Plummer, yep. is, he's a bad guy. And and Teresa Wright is her uh, the woman in the uh, future who's her assistant. I mean, it has such yeah. a cast. And yet, it, it, that and really does... a great does, musical score. Uh-huh. Charming setting. Yeah, it's, it's a good movie. But the people, that, that's one of those movies that you talk about writers getting forgotten. That movie sort of disappeared. 
Oh, I love that movie. That's actually a cult thing because there is a um <laughs> there's a group called Insight, which is um I can't remember what the the each letter was, but it's a fan club of Somewhere in Time. Oh, really? That's yeah. That's actually that's neat. I like yeah. that. And they meet in fact, uh, Jane was, I, I followed Jane on Instagram. Um, they meet every year at the um, Grand Hotel in Michigan where they shot it, um, except during the pandemic, of course. Um, and, um, yeah, uh, when Christopher was alive, he used to go to that, even when he was in the wheelchair. Um I, it, it, it was a sumptuous location. There's such was, a beautiful hotel and by the, by the water. And, yes. But what you were so saying, my point is actually what you were saying about love of the material. Every single person, and I mean every, the, from the writer that, that adapted it to the director to all the actors to prop people, everybody was passionate about this project. And then Universal messed up when they sent it out. <laughs> they, they they just, the distribution, I worked there at the time. Uh, the distribution oh. was, uh, I had, one of the perks of working, working at Universal was you got to see their movies um, on the lot. And I saw Somewhere in Time there. And then it disappeared because it was so badly distributed. They didn't know what to put it under. They didn't really. They they said it was a romantic comedy. Uh, it was romantic comedy. Oh, romantic comedy, yeah. Which was, yeah. it's a time travel story, guys. It's a time travel story. It's a love. It's a tragic time travel. Story. It's a tragic love story with time tra in and time travel. That's that's what it was. And they said it was a romantic comedy because they showed some of the funnier scenes in it. And I'm like. What are they doing when I saw the commercials? And then it disappeared. Well, I, and then they came on television, on cable. Okay. And that saved it. People seen it from that. And that's where the insight came from. <laughs> Earlier this year, well, I was reading as um, uh, it was the uh, Princess Bride uh, book by Carrie Elwes, uh, mm -hmm. As You Wish. And it uh, mentioned that something similar. They didn't know how to market the Princess Bride. And so it sort of flopped in the theaters, but then it was it was the, it was VHS, it was the VHS revolution as well as television that earned it its audience. Yeah, yeah, I think it was that that's what happened with Somewhere in Time too. I think it was VHS and cable. It, it was baby cable, you know. It was like none. It was uh, I forgot what the, you know. Very few cable channels. It was still baby cable. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, don't, I don't remember. Yeah, but um, but yeah, I, yeah, it, it it distribution is very important for a movie. If you don't know how to distribute it, you can kill it. Oh, um, a Christmas stable called The Bishop's Wife. That was killed in distribution. That came. That was one of the like. Um, that came back as a perennial movie for Christmas, and that's how it resurged. But that was a bomb. It's a Wonderful Life, same thing. Yeah, it's a one. I was gonna. Yeah, if you don't know how to distribute something, 
if you don't know how to distribute it, you shouldn't be distributing it. That's my, my opinion. <laughs> or you, you hire someone who knows how to distribute it. Why do you want a movie that you spent millions of, or thousands of dollars on to be a bomb? <sighs> it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and I'm sure it happens. And, and here's the thing, too. This is something to think about. So we're using examples of films that disappeared and came back. Mm -hmm. How many films disappeared? And never was seen again. Or is seen, but right. you have to watch something like Turner Classic Movies to see it. <laughs> Thank God for Turner Classic Movies and before it got all messed up, American Movie Channel. Those were the two channels you could see classic films. Um, when I was a little kid, they used to have... See, the problem was is they used to have stuff on independent channels with classic movies, but it was so cut up. It, they, I mean, really cut. It was it, it was cut to the point that you, sometimes it didn't make any sense. My mom would want us to... My father was into books. My mom was into movies. My dad taught us about classic books. My mom taught us about classic movies. And one thing that she would get very upset. She would like, you got to sit and watch this movie with me. And she would be very excited because it would be one of her favorite movies. And at the end, they cut all the best scenes out, you know? So when cable came and uh, First American Movie Channel came, which didn't have commercials at that time, and then Turner Classic Movies came, we could all watch these movies and enjoy them, not cut, and actually see the beauty of it, and see my parents, both of their favorite movies, without it totally stripped of the soul. That's another thing that happened a lot, was what television, as good as it did for reviving stuff, they cut it to the pieces that sometimes, like I said, you didn't even understand what you were watching. It's sad. And all the books that disappeared like you said you know I'm discovering authors recently that I never heard of and I'm having a ball reading them <laughs> of course of course and how many and the sad thing too is talking about old book burnings through history the vast majority of ancient literature has been lost forever yes uh, we have references there, there's references to some books and we have like the equivalent imagine finding Imagine finding the last 20 minutes of The Empire Strikes Back, and you hear reference to the Jedi and A New Hope. That's kind of that's basically what we're facing with a lot of these libraries that were destroyed. We have fragments of Greek and Roman and Egyptian literature, but it's it's gone unless we're gonna unless there's some library or um, you know scroll preserved uh, wrapped around a mummy somewhere, which occasionally they do find. Um, and able to fill in some of the blanks. You know, look at what happened. It's a travesty. Look at what happened in Alexandria. The library was destroyed. You know, Alexandria is the quintessential example. Yeah. yeah. Of course. But that's happened again and again yeah. um, throughout history. It I happened know. with the House of Wisdom when the Mongolians destroyed the, the House of Wisdom in Baghdad and the Library de la Mode and the the um, um, Mayan Library in South America and. And the uh, burning of the books and libraries and scholars in, in China under the first emperor. It's, it's unfortunately a tragedy that continually returns. That's why it's so important that they find stuff like the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't know if people really realize 
the painstaking work that those people are doing to take teeny tiny pieces that have basically, some of them have disintegrated, and taking pieces and putting it together like a puzzle so we have it. And the scrolls you were talking about in ancient Egypt, some of those are in great shape and some of those are not, and they are having to do the same thing. It's a puzzle that they're very, it's very difficult to put those scrolls together again. Um, but that's what they're doing. That's what they're working on. It's Some of the things that they're able to do um, with uh, technology, with reverse light and, and uh, different things and infrared and all that stuff, that yeah. they're able to actually have the entire sheet, even though they can't see it with their eyes, but they can photograph it with this, this technology. It's beyond belief that it, it's, it's the only saving grace we've got. <laughs> it's the only hope of getting things of that, or you know, just hopefully maybe there was a Roman patrician who had a library that hasn't been discovered yet. It's just somewhere waiting deep under the ground and some highway project will unearth it, and maybe it's in reasonably good shape enough that we can fill in some of the blanks. Well, that's actually quite reasonable. There's been, there's been a lot of discovery, especially in Rome, um, under, like, people's houses and under yeah, the roads exactly. and stuff like that. Um, it's a possibility that they can they'll find something that's amazing. I mean, they have found some stuff that's amazing, but, uh, you know, that we thought was completely lost, that's literature, one of... It's, that would be that's referred to like one of the play original plays that they did in Rome or Greece, and, and it's only referenced, and it probably right. was in Alexandria, <laughs> um, but but it could be in one of the people's homes in um, why do I always forget the name of it? You know where the the volcano went, and the people were... Oh, Pompeii. Pompeii. Pompeii Thank and Herculaneum. Thank you. I don't... Herculaneum, I remember for some reason, Pompeii, even though it was a, a major general, uh, I, I never remember the name. It just always pops out of my head. <laughs> Sad. And if, you know... Yeah, well, it's... I mean, hope springs eternal that we'll find some of these secret tombs and secret libraries and caches of... Uh, of literature, but in the meantime, you know, moving forward in time, uh, there's concerns like a lot of information that's electronic. Well, it's great, but what if that the means to read it isn't around anymore? Mm -hmm. You know, who who has floppy disk readers anymore? Right? Um, the technology we take for granted that we think is so modern today, it's it's still fragile. Information on it is still fragile. That's one of the reasons so. that. Um some filmmakers like Scorsese really don't like digital film um, because he's like, what's going to happen if somehow we lose the way to show these films and all we have of it is the digital film? There's no master of it in regular film or at least a copy of it in regular film to keep it and preserve it. Right, because the one thing that's absolutely certain is that history isn't something that happens something that's always happening and a thousand years from now two thousand years from now three thousand years from now 
likely, it's likely that archaeologists are going to be having the same kinds of discussions. We mm -hmm. heard about this movie called The Godfather. Mm -hmm. right? We have pictures of it and some books that have survived in old libraries, but you know, the film itself has been lost, except for this TV spot uh, where it's like, you know, a few seconds of it. Uh, yeah, people shouldn't laugh that's hearing this because there are a lot of films that were silent films and the early talkies and early television, especially live television, that are gone. Gone, exactly. They're and it, gone. There's no reason to think that won't continue to happen. Yeah. Uh, um, especially live television because they basically erased it. So they can re reuse the, the um, what do they call it, uh, the tape. So they could reuse the tape for the next week's show. So it's well, in in my book, I talk about how there's a there's a big war on Mars, and it just obliterates um, uh, the society that's there. So they have to sort of pick up, pick themselves up from the rubble and rebuild. And um, the magnitude of everything gets lost. And this is in the far future. It's still, so the same, still the loss, the erasure, the uh, destruction uh, of a legacy is still very much relevant. Because it doesn't, it's not something that just happened yesterday or yesteryear. It's something that will continue. It, there's, there's always that concern mm -hmm. that that axe will fall. And there's no reason, like I said, there's no reason to think it won't continue today. And, and, and that's not even getting into state, spon state sponsored censorships, uh, which go out of their way to purge things. The irony is that some of our, some of our oldest pieces of art, like some of the cave paintings in, in France. That's been around for tens of thousands of years, and that will probably be around for tens of thousands of years yet. It's a lot of the newer stuff that is more fragile, mm -hmm. I'd like to admit. Yeah. I mean, and it's so important to protect art and literature and film and music and all these things. That That's what makes us human. That's what gives us, that's our soul. We shouldn't lose yeah, that's it. That's the canvas of the canvas of humanity. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna change the subject, but just a little bit. Um, I wanted to ask you the effect of um, writers of the future on your career as a writer. Well, my book Red Space Rising, which came out last month, it is not just based on my Writers of the Future story, but my Writers of the Future story is in it. Really? Think of it, it, it was that, yes. The, that story was, it told the story, uh, it was called War Hero, um, back when it won in 2013, and it told the story of these, this war on Mars and these futuristic um, enemies, these enemies um, who were running a tyrannical state, and how a soldier, and Harris Alexander Pope is tasked with tr tracking down one of them who has escaped the equivalent of the trials of Nuremberg, right? He's, he's trying to track down this particularly sadistic villain who has to be brought to justice. So the story one in Writers of the Future was actually, uh, it was the first, it was the opening story for the anthology, volume 29, that came out that year. And I ended up turning that whole thing into a story because the whole, and the whole thing into a novel. So Harris Alexander Pope, the adventure he ha had in that Writers of the Future story, that was just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more that's going on. There's the end of one war and then fighting through the peace and the espionage. 
espionage and the political machinations and plotting senators and this group that dies, this, this, this sadistic group of tyrants on Mars who have been killed. But this is a future where death is not permanent. People can come back. They just Their minds that are saved on computer are just downloaded into the new bodies. Uh, but bodies, bodies don't necessarily look like the ones they were born with. So uh, that story is almost like a teaser trailer for the novel that, that I just wrote. Wow, that's cool. And and so what is it so it's a so it's like a, a you you wrote you expanded. That's what the word I was looking for. I, you I expanded, expanded it. I started in in developing the short story, I was after I needed to create a little bit of a backstory. I mean, how did he what was that war like? What 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 were these this this tyrannical government was like? Um and what happens afterwards? Because it, it's very much in, in the middle of the action kind of story. There's clearly more going on that he just experiences part of it, as we always do in life. It's just our stories just sort of, our own personal past just gloss over the surface of, of a larger epic that we're not always aware of. And I ended up really fleshing out that backstory into a, into a full novel. So okay. his the story of Harris Herzog, Alexander Pope, and trying to bring these uh, escapees to justice, these tyrants to justice. That's that's it's, I mean, it's that's told in the story. It's a military sci-fi novel. It's also about espionage and uh, and a story about the human the human desire the, the the human human defiance in the face of overwhelming odds. That sounds that sounds really fascinating, and that's available everywhere now. Yeah, it was published by Flame Tree Press. It's available everywhere, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, from the publisher themselves. It's everywhere books are sold. <laughs> that sounds like a commercial. <laughs> everywhere <laughs> where books I, are I sold. I felt that we were just talking about movies, and I'm automatically falling into a theater voice here. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, uh, well, I actually am... I am a huge movie fan, so yeah, I love books and I love movies. I pretty equal in my book. <laughs> Same. I'm a bit. I'm a big fan of film, uh, which is why I feel strongly about it when adaptations or sequels or prequels are done poorly. Same thing with books, you know. I, so yes, it's uh, a part of the humans. Part of the human canvas. I think that, you know. Like you expanding your book, that is a very good thing. And then you could write a sequel, so that would be another expansion. You know, <laughs> it's like already, already working on it. <laughs> oh, you're right. And actually, uh, a lot of my uh, published fiction, the short fiction, is also set in the same universe. So sometimes there'll be a reference in one of my stories to this war that happened on Mars. Well, the book tells the story of that war. There'll be a reference in my book that'll refer to you know, a heist that happened uh, in the asteroid belt. And I'll have a short story that'll tell the story of that heist. So it's this big interconnected universe, which I just have fun playing in. That's kind of cool. So you have your own little universe to play in. So a little, yeah, my, my version of the MCU. In fact, the, uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the major characters in uh, Red Space Rising, um, Omera Javed, uh, 
she appears in a story I have on Escape Pod right now called An Incident on Ishtar. And in, in the book, Red Space Rising, she just makes a mention about something that happened to her on Venus, but she doesn't get into the specifics of it. Just she, he had, she was on Venus for a while and she had to leave in these big aerostat colonies that float around the atmosphere. She had to leave. Well, the story, if anybody was interested in that, on Escape Pod, you can, re- you can listen to or read an incident on Ishtar, which tells that story. And you don't even have to know anything about the book, and vice versa. I like to write the stories that are standalone, so wherever you're coming, whenever you're coming into it, you don't have to know there's anything else associated. It's not, they can stand on their own, but the stories are there. That's really cool. Um, so uh, what book, the first story you said was it's called War Story? Uh, the, the original short story is called War Hero. War Hero. Yeah. And uh, the book is called Red Space Rising. So uh, which book of um, Writers of the Future was it in? Volume 29. Okay. So it was a few years ago. Yeah, it was 20, uh, 2013. Okay. And do you feel that it launched you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it gave... I mean, I, I have friends... I made friends during that workshop week that I was still friends with it today. We still read. We're still first readers for each other's work. Uh, I uh, I'm very good friends with Andrea Stewart. She came out of that class and she has the Bone Shard daughter out right now. Um, her and I read for each other and still very good friends. Uh, I Eric Klein, Tina Gower. These are these are people who will be part of my tribe. And I it gave me the confidence. Running it gave me the confidence to realize what worked to study the market and to really get really buckle down and get organized and start sending out more stories and making more sales and now you know, it sells all the big sci-fi magazines and a lot of it does originate with that workshop week that's cool um we're coming to the end I know you don't do much social media, but do you have anything that you can give or a website or anything so somebody can say yeah. hi? <laughs> we were, yeah, we were, we were laughing before the interview about how I write about technology in the future. But personally, I am not a fan of a lot of technology, and I'm not a, I'm definitely not into social media. Having said that, um, I do have a website, BrianTrent.com, and I am on Facebook, Brian Trent, and. Those are the two places online that people can find me. On my website in particular, uh, of course, uh, there's uh, links to getting Red Space Rising and the, its earlier novel, 10,000 Thunders, uh, links to all of my stories. Some of them are behind paywalls, obviously, like for Analog or the magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. It's not free, but a lot of places like Nature, Escape Pod, Pseudopod, these are available for free. So it's, it is the, a single source, single repository for my work uh, for those who are interested in checking out more stories in that universe. Great. Um, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day for coming back and chatting with me. Thank you, Sherry. I appreciate it. It was very, a lot of fun. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.